We're reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And this is what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Thousands of people in Nui and Lake Mac willingly choose to follow Jesus. Are they deluded or just brainwashed or do they just need some crutch to lean on to get them through life? Or is there more evidence for Christianity than we often think there is? Maybe it's time to reconsider Christianity. One of my favourite episodes of Bluey, the hit TV show on ABC for kids, um, is an episode that's called Fairy Tale. And Bandit, in this episode, tells a for real life story about a place called the 80s. And if you're a child of the 80s, it's actually spectacular to watch. It's a lot of fun. But it starts with Bandit, who is the dad, closing the final page on a book, uh, a fairy tale book, Hansel and Gretel, they've been reading. And Bingo pipes up. And he says, a fairy tale's true. And Bandit says, well, well, what do you mean by true? He says, well, I mean, did they happen for real life? Bandit's response is, no, but they've got true things in them. Bingo says, like what? Bandit says, like, you know, it's not good to be greedy and stuff. And if you're brave and honest, then things will work out. Bingo goes, oh, yeah. See what he's saying about fairy tales? These things didn't necessarily happen for real life, but they've got true things in them. And I think that's the way that a lot of people think about the Bible. I was talking to a dad recently who's not a believer about the fact that he's hoping to send his daughter to a local Christian school. And I asked him how he felt about all the God stuff. And he said, well, whilst I'm not a believer, I, I still actually think all the, all the moral stuff in Christianity is good. So there's a guy who doesn't think that what Jesus claims about himself and what's written in the Bible is for real life. But... I imagine he would say there are true things in it. Isn't that what a lot of us think in Australia? Isn't that the way that a lot of Australians think about the Bible and Christianity as a whole? In the McCrindle research in 2017, what they found was that 45% of people in Australia identify themselves as Christians. Now, when you dig down into that figure a little bit further, what you see is that uh, 22% of them are people who would say they are churchgoers, that is, they go at least on a monthly basis. And even that figure seems pretty high, but it's significant, isn't it? Because 45% of Australians identify with Christianity in some way, shape or form. And when you look across to no religion, the top reason for why people have put no religion as their preference there is that they prefer science and evidence base. Now, I don't know where you're at. I'm not sure where your friendship circles are at, but this tells us something about our culture. The first thing it tells us about our culture is, is it's not as anti-Christian as the media makes it out to be. 
And many of our friends, they're just not quite sure what to believe about Jesus because they haven't had the opportunity to properly look into it for themselves. Second, I think that this means that if people, that people have not simply looked at the facts around Christianity, if 15% of people of Australians are saying that they have no religion because they believe in science and evidence, then I'm not sure that they've understood the nature of faith and I don't think they've actually looked into the evidence surrounding Christianity and Jesus at all. Because it's simply not true to say that science-based and evidence-based rational logic will always lead you to reject God and reject religion. It's way too simplistic to think that rational thinking rules out faith in God. In fact, in Christianity, Christianity and rational scientific thinking have always gone hand in hand down through the ages. For example, there have been around about 500 or so Nobel Prize recipients in the 20th century, and over 65% of them have identified themselves as Christians. Now, I haven't won a Nobel Prize before, but I dare say it takes a fairly large brain to do that. And yet their scientific endeavor, their smarts, have not, has not caused them to throw out their faith. Now, that's not to say there aren't a lot of roadblocks to faith that people need to work through and think about. And and to be honest, some things about Christianity are just, well, they're just pretty far out, aren't they? You see, as a Christian, I believe that 2,000 years ago, God literally became a human being. He was born of a virgin in a tiny little backward town called Bethlehem. I believe that Jesus could bend nature that he calmed a storm, that he walked on a Galilean lake, that he turned water into wine. I believe that he healed the sick, cured the lame. I believe that he died on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. And perhaps most impressive of all, he actually rose again from the dead three days later. As a Christian, I also believe that the Bible is actually the inspired word of God, that he's really listening to our prayers and, and that he's in control of the world, despite what sometimes looks like evidence to the contrary. Now, that's kind of wild, right? When you say all out loud altogether, it actually sounds kind of ludicrous. And so these are not things we just want to blindly believe. We want to investigate and understand and inquire with openness and humility. And so today I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to reconsider Christianity, to reconsider the premise that Christians are just intellectual peasants for two main reasons. And the first is the creation around us. Now, this is not a knockdown argument at all, but one of the things we see when we use our scientific endeavor to look at the world around us is we see how detailed and complex it is, how perfect and wonderful it is. Have you noticed that? And what this has done through the ages is push people to believe in some kind of higher power that explains how the world came to be creation narratives. Every culture has a creation narrative of some sort. Even in the West, we have the Big Bang creation narrative that explains the existence of the universe and how it came to be. But when you look at each of these creation narratives, I reckon the question you're left with is still a question of complexity and and vastness and, and purpose. Why did this happen? How did all of this happen in such a way that it leaves us with a world that is so precise and detailed in its makeup? 
Bill Bryson, who doesn't describe himself as a spiritual person in any way, wrote a fascinating book called The Body. And in this book, he shows us the incredible complexity there is to the human body. And he speaks in layman's terms, which is really helpful for me. But here's an example of one of the things he says. He says, your lungs smoothed out would cover a tennis court and the airways within them would stretch nearly from coast to coast. The length of all your blood vessels would take two and a half time, would, would take you two and a half times around the earth. The most remarkable part of all is your DNA. You, you have a meter of it packed into every, swell, every cell and so many cells that if you formed all the DNA in your body into a single strand, it would stretch 10 billion miles to beyond Pluto. Think of it. There is enough of you to leave the solar system. You are in the most literal sense, cosmic. Now, isn't that a great quote? And as you think about that, what are the conclusions that you could draw about how it all came into being? The precision that would be required to build and design something like that just that, that just kind of keeps going and, and the human body just keeps rolling on day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. You could say either there is no God and therefore all of what we see around us is actually, actually an accidental miracle or we could say there is someone or at least something behind the cosmos. Bill Bryson himself actually says, I'm not a spiritual person. And the things I've done haven't made me one. But the one thing I did appreciate when I was writing a short history was that conventional science and a belief in God are absolutely not incompatible. There's a lot of double negatives there, but he's saying that science and, can, and belief in God can go hand in hand. What the Bible does for us is it shows us who is behind creation. This is what it says in Psalm 104. It says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. He covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Now it's all very poetic language, but what we see here in Psalm 104 is, is, is intentionality and purpose and design and care and God is the one behind it all. Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, says this, science is simply mankind trying to make, trying to understand the greatness of God's design. The alternative is that we are simply here because of some kind of accidental cosmic burp. Most of the time, when people claim there is no God, 
is it's usually because they have decided that well before looking at any of the evidence to the contrary. I want to put it to you that you can't simply hide behind the claim there is no God without putting forward another reason for our existence, without being able to explain the complexity and the beauty of creation in a way that is reasonable and rational. The onus is actually on you. The second thing I want to point us to uh, for evidence for Christianity is actually to the Bible itself. John Dixon, who is a writer, blogger, pastor, uh, and also an immensely qualified historian with a PhD, particularly in ancient history, put out a challenge a number of years ago on his Facebook page just before uh, Christmas. This is what he said. He said, I'll eat a page of my Bible if anyone can find a single professor of ancient history, classics, New Testament, in a real accredited university anywhere in the world who thinks Jesus didn't live. Now, in 24 hours, he had 50,000 responses on his Twitter page. And over the days leading up to Christmas in that year, they just kind of kept rolling in, pouring in. He was retweeted by atheists all over the world who encouraged people to take up his challenge. And to date, he has not been given a name of one single professor in those areas of expertise in a legitimate university anywhere in the world who didn't think, who doesn't think Jesus lived. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? 50,000 responses and not one of them could give him a name. In fact, one of the most eminent scholars of ancient history who's not a Christian has been quoted to say, frankly, I know of no ancient historian or biblical historian that would have a twinge of doubt about the existence of Jesus Christ. The documentary evidence is simply overwhelming. And you can quote me. So I am. So why is this the case? Well, there are so many things that we could do at this point. Lots of people uh, uh, assume that the Bible is un unreliable. And so, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to look at the fact that the Bible is verifiable. Uh, but as people kind of claim that the Bible is unreliable, what history does is it says you can't actually hide behind that claim. And the first thing I want us to see here is that the Bible actually puts its, itself on the chopping block of history, so to speak. It actually claims to be history. It doesn't claim to be a fable. It's not a fairy tale with some true lessons that we can glean from it. But it actually claims to be a document that is written into a particular historical context that we can therefore, and, and, and we can therefore test it. The Bible is verifiable. So this is what it says in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So what we see just in these few verses is a couple of things. First, we see that Luke has a particular purpose as he writes. 
He wants to reaffirm to Theophilus things that Theophilus has already begun to be hearing about and, and, and things he has been taught. And to do that, what he does is he goes and he speaks to eyewitnesses of the events. He takes down a careful, detailed record of the things that happened from the beginning. And so with that in mind, it actually helps us to know how we should read the Bible. Once we know what type of literature it is, that is how we ought to read it. Uh, and we do this all the time with movies and books and, and the media. So the way we watch a movie like Encanto, uh, we don't talk about Bruno, is actually very different to the way we watch a documentary like The Social Dilemma, for example, which is a, a terrifying kind of look into the way that social media affects us as individuals and our society as a whole. You see what I'm saying? Luke says, this is history. I'm here, Mr. Theophilus. I have gone back and taken things back to as close to the source as I possibly can. And now I'm reporting these facts to you. So we can't just simply read the book of the Bible as morals or some kind of nice story that the church wants us to hear. It's not that at all. It's history. The other thing to note in, in these verses is that the Bible actually sets itself uh, in a particular time. So here in, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Right? He doesn't say once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. He actually gives us testable names, a geographical location, and the Bible regularly does this. It references specific towns and buildings and villages and, and landscapes and distances between towns. And it, it references religious leaders and kings and emperors of Rome and philosophers. And they do this in considerable detail that can actually fairly easily be verified even 2,000 years on. That's not always an easy process. And sometimes it's tricky to kind of piece all of these things together. But that's the case with all ancient history. The Bible test puts itself on the chop chopping block of history and says, test me. So how do we test if it's good history? Well, we need to check the sources around the time of Jesus. We need to see what other, other people were saying about Jesus, if, at anything, if anything at all. And the great thing is that around the time of the Bible, there are lots and lots of other sources that we can compare the New Testament with. Sadly, today, I don't have time to go into all of them, but if you come to our life series, uh, we, do a, we, we do a more thorough job of this uh, as we look into things in week two of the life series. Alternatively, there are loads and loads of great books that speak into this, but probably the most easily accessible one of these is John Dixon's The Christ Files. But the summary is that Jesus is mentioned at least in passing in as many as 10 to 12 different 1st and 2nd century Jewish and Roman documents that we have from that period. Here's one example of these ancient non-biblical writings. It's by a guy called Tacitus. He's ancient Rome's greatest historian. And actually what a, what, what a lot of us learn in school about emperors of, in Rome come from Tacitus. And he mentions just in passing the death of Jesus and the name of the flourishing movement that came after him. So this is what it says. Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
and the deadly superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city, Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meets and become popular. And so we see here in this quote that Tacitus isn't a great fan of Christianity, but his disdain for Christians doesn't prevent him from accurately recording when Jesus lived, his title and the circumstances of his death. And so that is just one of 10 to 12 different references from non-biblical sources around that time. But if you look at all of those documents, then what you can work out from these non-biblical sources alone, uh, you can work out these things, where Jesus lived, when Jesus lived, that he taught many people, that he did miracles, or at least he did things that were thought to be miraculous, that he had a devoted band of followers, that he was called the Christ, that he was tried by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified in Jerusalem, and that many people claim that he rose from the dead. We can glean all of that just from ancient sources without even opening the Bible or turning to all of the documents that were written by early Christians in the, first, in the second century. So the Bible itself puts its, uh, its head on the chopping block of history. And we've seen that the basic facts about Jesus are verified by non-biblical writings around the same time. And that is what we might call external reliability. But the other thing to note is that the Bible itself has great internal reliability. Lots of people think that the Bible is riddled with errors and inconsistencies, and some think it's changed over time, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible's internal reliability is actually off the charts. To start with, we need to know that the Bible isn't simply one source written by one individual. Rather, the Bible is a collection of multiple different documents, letters, biographies, narrative history, poems, songs, and more, written by dozens of people living in a range of different situations over a long period of time. So just in the New Testament alone, we don't just have one or two documents on Jesus and the early Christians written by a couple of authors, but we actually have 27 documents written by eight or nine different authors. So there are lots and lots of different sources just within the Bible. And when you look at the Bible as a historical source, we need to ask questions then that historians might ask. And so here are two questions that we ought to ask about the Bible as a historical source. And the first is, how many copies do we have? How many copies of the New Testament and the Bible do we actually have? The second is, what's the time gap? That is, how many years between the original text, when we think it was written, and the earliest surviving copy? And so this is what we end up with. We end up with a time gap of around about 40 years from the date of writing to the very earliest fragment of the New Testament that we have. And the number of copies we have, well, if you just count the ones in Greek, there's 5,795 in the original Greek language. But when you combine that with the translations into other writings within the first 300 years or so, you end up with 17,974 copies. When you compare that with what you learn at school from Tacitus, it's somewhat overwhelming. You've got 33 copies and a 750 to 950 year time gap. 
And historians would still say that Tacitus is good historical evidence. That's why you learn it in school, right? But the evidence for the Bible is overwhelming. The number of documents, the time gap between hand, but, but between the, uh, when we thought it was written and the earliest copy we have is absolutely minuscule. The other thing that, that's interesting to know is that all the other, all, all the authors of the New Testament actually wrote fairly independently of one another. They wrote from different parts of the Roman Empire at different times. And these letters and biographies and narrative histories, they all tell the same story of Jesus. They don't contradict one another. Sure, they emphasize different things and they're a little bit different from one another in, in, in the elements of the story that they include. They're also writing to very different audiences across the Roman Empire, but they don't contradict one another. Now, how does that happen? How do you get 27 different documents together and ensure that they all tell the same story? Well, you could get all of those eight or nine authors in a room and you could do a group project, the Bible project, we might call it. But, but we know that that's not what happened. This is the Bible's explanation for it. The Bible claims that though there are many authors, in the end, there is just one. The Bible is God's book. It's written by God to us through human authors. So 2 Peter 1 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, God is the ultimate author. And because of that, you don't get scenarios where one Bible writer disagrees with another. And so what we see in the Bible is great consistency on matters of God and salvation and creation and the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the role of faith in our life. They all agree. And the Bible kind of says to us all, of course they agree. Maybe humans wrote it down on ink parchments. But God is the author, penned by men, down through the ages, but the ultimate author is God. And that's where we get its remarkable internal reliability. And it's actually why the scribes who copied and recopied the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament took such great care and precision and time because they believed that they were recording the very words of God. Now, we could literally talk for hours about the reliability of the Bible. We, look at it, we could look at our archaeological evidence and all sorts of things. Uh, we could look at the careful process that took place for the copying and recopying of the scrolls that the scribes went through. So many things we could look at today. But I want us to finish by looking at why all this matters. We've kind of pitched this series as an opportunity for you to come and consider Keep Christianity. And so we're engaging with what we think are some of the concerns and assumptions and roadblocks that, that, that stand in the way of people trusting Jesus. And, and you might be tempted to think that this question of evidence for Christianity is something that has been thrust upon Christians by the world today. You might be tempted to think, well, this is a question about, that I have for them about their belief system. But I want to say Christians actually care about this more than the skeptic. 
And not because we're worried that our book won't stack up to the scrutiny of Dawkins and other atheists. God's word will do just fine there. But we care about it because it's the gospel message and because of the content of the gospel message. What we proclaim is more than a philosophy about life. It's more than a worldview. It's more than a lifestyle change. Christianity is actually all about a person. It's about the person of Jesus. And if he didn't exist, then there's actually no relationship that we can have with Jesus. There's no salvation. There's no future hope. There's no purpose in Christianity at all. Christianity requires a Jesus who lived and walked this earth. Have a look at the way one of his closest followers talked about his faith and the faith that he's then passing on to others. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the message that he believes and is passing on to the church is grounded in this very visual, auditory, tactile experience of Jesus. The message they proclaim is not a philosophy, but a person who they did life with, who they saw and touched and heard and experienced life with. You take away the historical Jesus and there's nothing left to proclaim. But there's more evidence for Christianity than you might initially think. And if what I've been saying to you today is true, then you can actually have relationship with the same person that these eyewitnesses saw and touched and heard and then proclaim to us. The word used here to describe this relationship is, is fellowship. And it's saying by trusting in the person of Jesus, we have fellowship with them and they have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and, and we get caught up in that too. Now, how does that all work? How can we have relationship with the God of the universe? Well, we're going to unpack that in subsequent weeks but you get a hint of it in the following verses. Have a look in verse five here. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Purifying from us from all sin is how we have relationship with God. It's what makes us clean and acceptable before God. And it's what enables us to have relationship with him and be joined with Jesus. This is why it matters, friends. Not because the skeptic might throw a rock, but because if Jesus never existed, there's nothing to proclaim. There's no relationship and we cannot actually know God. But God has made himself known through a beautiful and vast and complex creation. It's not simply good enough to say there is no God. He's made himself known to us in his word. He's 
God-inspired, historically verifiable word. It's simply not enough to say the Bible is unreliable. And God has done all of this so that we can have fellowship with him through the blood of his son. Can I say, if you're not a Christian yet, today, friend, is the day to get on board and start a deeply satisfying relationship with Jesus. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us stumbling around in the dark in this world. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in creation. And we can see your vastness, your complexity, your goodness in, as we look at the world around us. Help us to see the complexity and, and goodness of our creation and turn to you. Father, we also uh, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word so that we can know you and we can have fellowship with Jesus the one who they saw and touched, the one who appeared. Um, and we thank you that they proclaim this good news to us so that we can have relationship with you. We pray that we would be brave enough, if we haven't yet, to step into relationship with you. Thanks for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.